Hello, and welcome to another episode of Take Care Tuesday. Today's podcast is the first part of a two-part series. As Steve Harvey would say, folks, we got a good one for you today. I've been privileged to chat with Mr. Paul Forbes about educational equity and what is being done by schools and educators to provide those equitable opportunities for all students. I hope you enjoy. You're doing the good work, the good work for uh, New York Public Schools and the Department of Education. So um, without further ado, I'll go ahead and introduce you. I have with me today, Paul Forbes. He's the Executive Director within the Office of Equity and Access, a native New Yorker who was born, raised, and still lives in Brooklyn. He has dedicated his professional life to working with students and families from historically underrepresented neighborhoods and communities. And in his current role as the Executive Director for Educational Equity, uh, Anti-Bias and Diversity, Paul provides oversight and support for the effective implementation and continuous development of the Implicit Bias CRE initiative. And he also helps develop a strategic vision to guide and implement um, trainings and professional development to schools, after-school providers, districts, and the Bureau support offices on equity topics within education that includes implicit bias, culturally responsive education, and discussions around systemic and cultural racism. Yes, ma'am. Wow. And that sounds good. I'm like, who are we talking about here? Okay, <laughs> good. Please. I want to meet this person. <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, maybe a little bit about your background and what led you to um, the work that you're doing? Sure. So again, I'm grateful to be here and thank you for the invitation. Um, <clears throat> so I'm native New Yorker, born and raised here in Brooklyn, New York City. Um, as our borough president says, um, there are those who, two types of people, those who are from Brooklyn and those who want to be from Brooklyn. So. I love being part of New York City. Um, and for those who don't know, New York City is not just Manhattan, um, it's five boroughs. And so I'm from the best borough, Brooklyn. Um, I had an opportunity, you know, growing up in Brooklyn, two parents, my mom, the nurse, my dad was a pastor, and um, there were five of us. And we had opportunities to um, live through the 80s uh, when a lot of stuff was going on in terms of um, drugs, um, presidency with the President Reagan and um, trying to come back and recover New York City going through a tough time in the 90s. Um, and so I was able to experience that. But one of the things that um, I was aware of in my household, my parents were West Indian and education was always a focus for my parents, right? And so it was always trying to get the best education. And we all went to public school, but then we found out about a special program called Prep for Prep, um, which got me into a private school. My brother and I applied, I got in, my brother didn't, so he continued with public school and I left and went to private school. And I saw the tale of two cities, the way in which we have um, within the same city, two different structures, um, of what I received in terms of education and what my siblings were getting simultaneously. And I remember <clears throat> graduating and being a 
pre-med student, was going to be a doctor, following the steps of my mother as a nurse, I was going to become a doctor. And then hanging out with my sister, who was student teaching, eventually um, she'll become a teacher, assistant principal, and now she's a principal in East Harlem, New York. <clears throat> she um, helped me see and learn about some of the inner work and behind the scene of education. I remember um, being at a school and hearing from the chancellor at that time, Chancellor Rudy Crew, um, who spoke and I was like, you know what? I remember saying to her, I'm gonna work for that man one day. And words matter. A year later, after putting it into the universe, I was working for the department, at the time the Board of Ed, in the Chancellor's office. And so that began my journey. And now in my 2050, about to begin my 25th year in urban education reform. And I was able to look and say, why is there a tale of two cities and why would we have a system where one set of students in the same household, I was getting one education and, the other, and my siblings another. <clears throat> and even within that system, my sister went to one school, Clara Barton, and my other sister went to Prospect Heights, a school, two schools right across the street from each other, both public schools. But even there, there was differences of what was a good school and what was a bad school at the time. And so I made a commitment. Um, to bridge those, that gap and say, for future Pauls and Camilles and Debbie and Davids, my siblings, that we wouldn't have to have that struggle our parents went through of saying, we have to find the best school and find a special program, all schools. And so that brings me now here at this point, 20 plus years later, where that's been the mission and the calling that I've had. Um, and so I've been through, worked at many offices and worked at the schools, worked at districts, central, but I'm blessed and fortunate now to be leading the citywide initiative, um, implicit bias awareness um, initiative out of the Office of Equity and Access, where we're ensuring that um, over the course of the time period that we are doing this initiative, over 130,000 staff members will come through an implicit bias awareness workshop to become more aware of the biases that we bring with us every day and then how we can not eliminate the biases, but how we reduce the effects that we have on our behaviors, our practices, our policies, in order to create a better tomorrow for our young people and our communities. Yeah, I saw the model for, um, for your program and it was the three different chunks. It was awareness, capacity, and sustainability. I really like how yeah. it was phased into that approach for that process because as we look at professional development, it's not a one-shot one you know, get. It's not a one-time thing that you do and, and then all of a sudden you're trained, but it's something that we have to continuously nurture and, and discuss and unpack and debrief and all those, those great things. Can you tell me a little bit about specifically your role at the DOE and um, a little bit about the program, about um, the citywide implicit bias initiative? Sure. Um, so again, my role is um, as executive director, you have the full title that talks about, you know, executive director of educational equity, anti-bias and diversity. At the end of the day, it's, it's about how do you create the infrastructures that will ensure 
that we have not just equality, but more specifically equity, right? Ensuring that those who have not historically received, those who have not been represented, that we are doing our due diligence to know who they are and then provide the services and resources and materials that they can be in the same place that we've said that we want for all students, right? And so, um, as you mentioned, there's three tiers or three levels to this initiative. Many people speak about it and say, oh, it's an implicit bias awareness workshop. What we know from the research is that um, it can't be a one size fit all. It can't be a one time thing. It's not an episodic moment. You can't just come through, as I say in my session, at the end of this workshop, you will not be saved. You won't be cured. You won't be healed. You won't be sanctified but you'll be more aware. You will right. leave him more aware of what we say, what we don't say, what we do and what we don't do. And that's important because we know implicit bias is unconscious. It's the beliefs and the system and the attitudes that we have, but that we're not even aware of. And that's just the brain science behind it. But I was saying, when you know better, you should do better. So if we become aware, that's the first step. So foundationally, we want to bring some of the um, brain science and day-to-day uh, -day interactions that allows us to see how this happens um, with each one of us, right? But again, we don't want to stop there because we don't want people clicking and checking and saying, I'm done, I'm good. We also do a thing where we work with, we have 46 districts in New York City, the largest school system in the country, 1.1 million students, over 140,000 staff members at a central district and school-based level. Wow. And yeah, that's a big number, right? And it's a lot of work. So what we did, we chunked out and said in year one, we worked with 14 districts. In year two, we worked with 15 districts. And year three, which would have been this year, we would have been working with the remaining 17 districts, but because of COVID, we are going to reevaluate of what that work is going to look like. But the idea is that once you have the foundational, what we wanted to do was look at the districts, which would build capacity because we can't do it alone. I have a great team, but there's only so many of us, right? We talk about essentially 18 people, um, we can't do it all. So what we want to do is build capacity. And we're working with the district folks because districts have anywhere from 25 to 46 schools that they might have to work with, with tens of thousands of students, staff members. And so we want to build capacity with the district, with their the superintendent, his and her team, and any other members of an equity team that's formed by that superintendent. Building out structures to understand how to use data um, disaggregate the data and to understand the bias-based beliefs that keeps us back from moving the needle um, and truly changing the narrative. At the same time, we ask each superintendent to identify two schools in their district where we could go deeper and do what we call the incubator school work. So, right, so it's one thing about the foundational, we then start building capacity and the third level or third tier would be incubator school where we're saying, let's go in and look at the policies, practices, and procedures that are occurring at the school level 
And let's unpack and see where, again, we look at the bias-based beliefs that leads to the homework policy, the discipline policy, the suspension policy, the relationship that we have with parents. When we say parents as partners, what does that mean? What does that look like? When we say we're going to offer um, AP, gifted and talented courses, who's in those courses? Who's taken, who has access? What is the access process? Is this someone who is the quote unquote gatekeeper who decides whether they give or not give? How is that done? And what biases play out there? So we are able to incubate, which then allows for those districts to then say to other schools, come and see and hear the process that was done to get to where we are. And so we believe that we, again, oftentimes the research says the one-off of an implicit bias workshop, why it doesn't work, Starbucks can shut down for a day, for half a day. That didn't solve the issue. It's ongoing work. It's a daily walk that we must commit to. And so we're seeing um, the way in which this has effectuated change within the districts, as well as within schools who have been doing this with fidelity and intensity. And as we know, everybody won't get it at the same time. There's a continuum, but what we're committed to is creating the infrastructures um, and support that folks can tap into to continue to go deeper with their racial equity journey that we're all on. That sounds like a lot of hard work. Yes, um, everyone has to be on the same page and understand what, what the goals are. Um, and so um, looking at what the goals are, what has been the impact of, of all of this work that's been done? Or happened? Yeah, you know, so I'm always careful with that. I don't want to say, oh, well, we swooped in and we're the savior and because of us, this happened, right? So I'm careful with what we say with that um, I know the commitment we've made, right? We could say at this point, more um, almost 60,000 people have come through the implicit bias awareness workshop. We, we pre-COVID, it was um, a five-hour in-person workshop that was done. And since then, we went to a remote, and we might be, you know, talk about that later, but went to a remote um, platform, virtual platform, where we could do some um, self-paced modules and then come together for a 90-minute um, live session, which we've been doing. And thus far, we've had over 10,000 people come through that since May. So it's been um, pretty impressive. But the point is trying to um, create a community. And I said earlier, words matter. I don't even say socially distanced, right? I, I believe in, I say that we are physically distanced but we remain social. So even in the virtual space, I do believe that we create community uh, where folks understand that we're in this together and we're learning with, with and from each other. And so that's the spirit that we've had, or at least that I have had and a member of the team is that when we say what has worked, I'm impressed when I see and hear just language, words being used that are different, right? So um, as a dean, I used to be in a space where I would have students, young men, young ladies, boys and girls, and I would say, guys, 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 come on, guys, come on, guys. Wow. So I think about why do we say guys? What, what, who are we privileging? And why are we saying guys when we usually associate guys with a certain gender? 
Um, but I hadn't thought about that, right? Or when we talk about things like perfect attendance, we've been very good on my parents would say, go to school and get perfect attendance. Why have we created a thing where we say that attendance is a thing that we value? When I talk about the quality, but we use things like perfect attendance as something we recognize. And what does I say for someone who's missed two or three classes for reasons? Or how do people say, I can't do what I need to do with a family or taking care of my parent or something because I believe that there's some kind of idea that we have about the value of perfect attendance. How do I have, how has that played out in the pandemic mm. where we now say, Oh, we are doing work and you're not perfect attendance at work, but what does that mean? I'm at home and doing more work than I did when I was going to the office. Right? So how do we value things when we use words? Um, and, and what does that mean? Why do you say freshmen? Right? Do we reconsider and say first year students, freshmen, just having a freshman, just the idea was from this idea when we had young men going to schools. And what does that mean? What pictures do we show? How do we depict what a nurse, look? I said, my mom was a nurse. Growing up, my mom said to me, you should be a doctor. My mom made great money as a nurse, but she said to my sisters, y'all should be nurses. Now here's my mom, a good person, well-meaning, but she still had ideas because she wasn't seeing male nurses, she was seeing male doctors. Mm -hmm. And my sisters, you should be nurses because she sees herself in them. And when my sister Camille, who's a principal now, because she didn't like blood, it didn't work out too well for her to be a nurse, but my mom said, you should be a teacher. So again, think about the gender roles that we have. When I say teacher, what gender pops into your mind? What, 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 when I say a secretary or, um, or when I say a doctor or a nurse, what, what pops into our mind? And it's those kinds of things I'm seeing, that kind of awareness that people are um, beginning to do things like about the name story, the value and the impact identity of a name and mm -hmm. saying to students, tell me more, not just how to pronounce your name, but talk to me about your name story. Yeah. And we're learning about cultures, we're learning about and that's individuation, right? So when I start seeing some of these things that's being um, incorporated into schools, when we talk about SEL, social emotional learning, it's not another package. People are beginning to do the personal work, the reflective and introspective work, and it's beginning to manifest in the structures and systems that's in our schools. And so I see that um, when we visit with district folks, and they've now done the data and said, <clears throat> we looked at AP classes and we don't just offer um, AP and honor courses, but now we're looking at who's in them that we found out that almost 80% female and 20% male. What message are we sending mm -hmm. when we see something like that? So just that kind of reflective way of not using data as a hammer, but as a tool and seeing a disproportionality and learning how to look at who's being suspended two, three, four times more likely to be suspended. As I see folks use that kind of um, um, root cause analysis, we start seeing that we are making a difference. And again, I don't want to say, oh, well, this school is now a blue ribbon school because we came, but we know that part of the ethos and the infrastructure that we're helping to create, that's making a difference. And that feels good because at the end of the day, I say this for a better tomorrow, it's for our young people and our families and our communities. And so we know that we are creating systemic change 
and disrupted and dismantled the structures and systems that have been replicated and perpetuated for so long. Wow. You said oh, a whole lot there. And <laughs> um, sorry. Can't wait to go back in and review it because I was, um, when you were talking about the individualization and really the internalization of SEO and how it intersects with um, implicit bias and the cultural responsiveness as teachers and so that activity that you talked about, um, the the name, like what's in a name, how how did you come about to being named Paul? You know, there's a story behind that. Absolutely. Um, and it helps us to connect as human beings to tell that Amen. story. Um, we, we do that in, in some of our restorative work where that's actually one of the introductory rounds and, and teachers get a kick out, out of it, you know, yep. and, and it's something that I, you know, heavily ask them to do it and replicate it for their students as well. And, and it helps to remember names <laughs> when you when you that's hear that right. story, it's like, oh, OK, I won't forget about that story of how you were named, you know. <laughs> Um, and then and I've, heard also, some, I've heard some interesting stories like, oh, I'm named after the girlfriend of my father. I'm like, <laughs> I've been in sessions where I'm like, well, what just happened there? Like, can you tell me? <laughs> okay. Well, I was watching my mom and she was in labor. She's watching novella. She's watching uh -huh. opera. And this is pretty beautiful. Right? So we share that. And as you said, it's about the connections. We have more in common than we have differences. And, and too often, especially in the world we're in today, we got to figure out how we break down those silos and start to, instead of building walls, let's build bridges, right? Absolutely. It's about human connections and human interaction. I'll find out more and be like, oh, Sierra, really? Oh, you're born in May too? Oh, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Taurus. Oh, you start finding out, oh, my, my daughter is born on you, you just find out so much and you say, okay, now we're connected. And every time my birthday comes around, I'm like, oh, I'll associate, which is what the brain does, yeah. Sierra's daughter, with my birthday. It's like those things like that, but it only happens if we're intentional to say, I'm going to individuate. Otherwise, it will be stereotypes. And I'll say, oh, where are you from? Texas. And automatically I have ideas. Oh, she's a Texan. What comes up in my mind about you that if I don't know anything about you, if we're not sharing this laughter, we're not sharing these conversations, I will have automatic ideas about who Sierra is, a Texan, and that's the association. We need to change that now more than ever it's so important absolutely because i was born in november and i'm not from texas <laughs> <laughs> perfect thank you <laughs> so i started thinking oh you might be a scorpio okay Ooh, yeah scorpio. yeah and i'm like oh that's a problem Ooh, I'm stop this call right now <laughs> watch out now <laughs> watch out now you know, I was looking at your website and um, there is um, a, a place on there where it asks you to go deeper. And so you click on your picture or some of your colleagues' pictures and you all have this really powerful story that you tell. And it's yeah. called um, Where I'm From. And I'm going to steal that. It is beautiful. It is so beautiful to see, um, you know, you bring out these artifacts, these objects from yeah. your upbringing, the food that you ate, the um, your family members' names, and it, it it creates a picture of a person, not just, you know, Paul Forbes, the executive director, but Paul Forbes as a human. And yeah. um, I, I saw that and I called Julia. I said, Julia, we're going to use this activity in one of our, our sessions because Absolutely. it is so impactful. I'll, I'll send you the, um, we have a template that I share with, um, with resources that um, George L. Lyon um, did the first Where I'm From um, poem and it has whether I'm doing cultural responsive education whether I'm doing implicit bias doesn't matter what a workshop whenever I can fit that in 
Um, I use the Where I'm From poem. It is such a powerful, powerful tool and resource that truly allows you to individuate. It allows you to get um, into group contact because, again, you start saying, oh, wait a minute, I used to listen to Vanilla Ice. Yeah. I used to listen to um, Millie Vanilla. Oh, so you, we, we start, we have connections. You're like, wait a minute, Merv Griffin? And, and you start hearing about the foods that I eat yeah. to West Indian, so he's born in America, but West Indian, and some of the customs, the, the oxtail. religion, you know, the oxtail <laughs> and roti and sorrel, and you're like, what yeah. are you or, or, you know, growing up in the church, again, where if a, if, a, if a day ended with the word D-A-Y, you were in church, right? So every day that we end with D-A-Y, you're in some kind of church setting and what that means and how that's shaped us, and so again, you start making connections. And yeah. so the Where I'm From poem, I know many folks as we're starting the school year who have reached out to me and said, Paul, can you send me this? Or can you remind me about that? Or the prompts and stuff? Or just thanking me because they're using that with their young people and with their families, right? Because it's yeah. a way for us to say we have more in common than we have differences. It's a powerful tool. And I'll make sure I'll send you the link for that resource as well. <laughs> Thank you. Share and I, I'll share it as well. I think we all yes, need to connect, especially this time. Yes, around what, what have been some of the accomplishments and successes of the office of equity and i know you, you mentioned the impact um yeah. what's some things we can celebrate and get excited about so overall the office has some other initiatives um ap for all as i okay. mentioned about ensuring that um <clears throat> ap is offered again things have changed because of covid but the you know the plan is that every school offers at least five ap courses um, advanced placement for anyone who is not familiar with that terminology, sorry about that, AP advanced placement, uh, which oftentimes is used as an indicator for the rigor of the work that you've done in your high school days. And sometimes you get exemption from college courses if you achieve at least at it. And we also know just being, a, just being exposed to an AP course, even if you don't get the three to be exempt, if you got a one, if you, got a, if you didn't even take the test, we know in the class. just being there. <laughs> Just yeah. being in that classroom where you had to be pushed, you are better in terms of college entrance, persistence, and success, right? Um, and so we have AP for All. We have some another, other initiative, Dream Program, where we look at some of the specialized high schools in New York City and how do we see who is represented in the schools and how do we support from an equity lens to ensure that students from different neighborhoods who historically have not been in, in these schools that they are. So we have programs that, it, you know, to help and support. So again, the Office of Equity and Access, our thing is how do we, again, we shine an equity lens mm -hmm. in everything that we do, that, we, that it's the forefront of what we're doing. Who's at the table, who's not at the table. But then when we look at who's at the table, we say, whose voices do we hear? And then whose voice do we not hear, right? So, so again, it's, it, it's on every level, not just enough for you to invite me to the party, but who is dancing at the party, right? It's not just enough to have the ingredients on, on, on your countertop, but it's how you bring it together now that truly makes the meal that we're gonna enjoy, right? So it's that intentional lens that we're looking at. And so for us, while again, it's been a lot, it's been challenging, um, student voice. We say, you know, we're not about giving voice to the voices. We believe that students have voice. The question is, are we listening, right? Are, are we, uh, are we magnifying and lifting up student voice, right? We don't want to feel as if we're 
simply there to open up heads and pour something into it saying, how do we collaboratively do this? Because we do believe, right? And that's important. It's not just to say, oh, we want to, because again, people can talk the talk. We want to walk the walk and create youth development programs that ensures that black and Latinx students are involved and they are a part front and center of the work that we're doing. Um, and so that's part of the work that's in there. And so I'm, I'm, I'm proud of as challenging as this can be, as the opposition that we can get and hear about, what are we talking about? We haven't heard at the highest level now where the person occupying the White House is saying, we don't want these kinds of conversations because it's divisive. No, it's because we haven't had these conversations that we have been so divided, right? Yeah. You're like, no, this is what we need. We need to talk about cultural responsive and sustaining education. <clears throat> we need to talk about critical race theory and understand that the original sin of this country had the enslavement of one group and the genocide of another group. If we can't talk about that, we can't move forward. And we'll continue to see examples of how they manifest until we have those critical and courageous conversations. And so this office, um, we move that forward because that's just what we believe has to be done if we're gonna talk about doing the work on the back end. We can't do this work if we can't speak about why this work is necessary and what's been <clears throat> The structures and systems that have led to the place where we are where we are and so historical context is important, important. and we are at the forefront of that yeah you can't build a house on a shaky foundation we have to make sure we make sure that foundation is, is smooth and, and stable before yes, we do anything otherwise right. we'll, when the test the of time comes we know it's going to happen when those winds and those waves are beating against yeah. us the test of times and it's going to crumble and so we want the foundation to be as strong knowing that we might have to do some work to seal up cracks and do yeah. things i'm okay with that but let's build on that foundation and go from there and daily be better in the walk that we have yes ma'am yeah. what an informative session it was great to hear Paul Forbes discuss the strategies and systems in place that address implicit bias. So look forward to part two, coming soon from the Center for Safe and Secure Schools at the Harris County Department of Education, our Take Care Tuesday podcast. See you next Tuesday.